0: Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank
1: you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran. This is History, Culture, Trauma. Today, we are going to be tackling the topic of mental health in America. Um, We are joined by my co-host, Matthew Portel, Director of Communities. And also our guest this week is Dr. Robert Sege. And we will jump into, or really dive into the HOPE framework as we discuss mental health in America. And just to give us um, some very clear uh, big picture around the crisis that we're having regarding mental health in America, the last 10 years have been rough in America for lots of different reasons. We often like to talk about the social political context um, when we talk about issues um, that are affecting us um, in this country. And so in the last 10 years, we've had a spike in mental health issues, uh, especially suicide, the opioid crisis, Um, This is only exasperated by um, kind of the current uh, twin pillars of existential threat um, with with the climate crisis that we have currently, and of course, COVID-19, which um, both of which are collective traumas. And so today we will talk about um, how we need to have hope during these times and how positive experiences have just as much of an impact on our mental health as the adversity and the collective trauma that we are experiencing. Um, so I will hand it over to Matthew to introduce himself and also our guest today. Yes, I am Matthew Portel,
2: the Director of Communities of the Paces. And uh, I am really excited about today's uh, episode because many times we miss the power of hope and positive experiences. And, and for those of you who are listening, you know that we are Paces Connection. And that P stands for positive, right? And that was changed a a little, I guess, a year and a half ago. The name was changed a year ago. Um, And there's reason why. And today's guest, I think, is going to dig into why that P in paces is so important. So so Dr. Sege is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, where he directs the Center of Community-Engaged Medicine and is a core faculty member of the Tufts Clinical and Translational uh, Science Institute. He is a senior fellow of the Center uh, for the Study of uh, Social Policy in Washington, uh, is a part of the Leadership Action Team for Massachusetts Essential for Childhood Team, and serves on several boards. In 2019, he received the Ray Helfer uh, Award for the Alliance of Children's Trust and the American Pediatrics. So I don't think I need to say much more other than we are so excited to have you on the on the show, Dr. Sege. Um, So welcome to our uh, show.
3: Thank you. Um, You you should call me Bob for today, um, because you I'm a pediatrician and I can just kind of guess that you guys are both over 18. Um, So anyway, um, Madden and Ingrid, it's such a pleasure to be here. And I was just delighted when ACES Connection changed to PACES Connection, because as we'll talk about today, we know so much about the importance of positive childhood experiences, and we can help children and families by keeping that centered in the work that we do.
2: And I think we, we want to know more about your work. So, over the past few decades, there has obviously been an increased awareness across so many sectors about the impact of child adversity. However, I think you and a team decided, hold on a minute, right? So you focused on your research around the uh, impacts of positive childhood experiences. So tell us about the research that you conducted and the results that you found.
3: Sure. There's, there's a lot of research, but let me just talk about um, the work we did with Dr. Christina Bethel at Johns Hopkins and, uh, and some other colleagues. So we did a survey of people in Wisconsin. And this was part of a larger national survey. So it was a rigorously conducted random survey that people filled out and they answered all these questions about their health and well being. They also answered questions about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And with the help of Jennifer Jones, who's now at um, Prevent Child Abuse America, um, we came up with seven questions that we asked people about positive childhood experiences. And it was amazing that we saw that if you take all Wisconsinites, if they had positive childhood experiences, um, they could have a score of zero to seven, just like the ACEs score, with how many different kinds of positive experiences they remembered. Um, They were way less likely to have depression or poor mental health as adults. And then we focused in on just those people who had four or more ACEs. And if you remember, Four more aces is you had a pretty tough childhood because you had you know there are three kinds of abuse, two kinds of neglect, five kinds of family dysfunction. So you had to check a lot of boxes. Those people, if they had at least six of the seven possible childhood um, positive childhood experiences, they had um, depression or poor mental health. Only 20% of them had that. Whereas on the other hand, if they had um, few positive childhood experiences. 60%, 61% actually had poor mental health or depression as adults. So what we learned from this is that positive childhood experiences really, really matter. And they matter as much as adverse childhood experiences. And we'll talk about it later, but then we dug in, what are those positive childhood experiences? Leaving aside the questions you ask on a survey, what does it really mean and what can we do? And We've also read a bunch of papers and talked to people about what goes on in our brains that um, that sets us up to have these uh, positive th- these changes from positive childhood experiences.
1: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. We we've talked so much about how adversity is changing our brains and our bodies, and we have to uh, be able to express that there's the alternative, which is that. These positive experiences would have impact as well. And I often think, you know, when I was drawn to ACEs um, when I was in grad school, a large draw there for me was just human evolution, right? And how we're really talking about experiences and conditions that then shape our evolvement over time. And so I think it's exciting to know that as we create positive experiences, That we can be, um, you know, we can stand and be a buffer against adversity, uh, Mm -hmm. and that we're really uh, shaping um, not just ourselves individually, but shaping our society with positive experiences and positive conditions, and ultimately having an intergenerational effect as well. So the research is promising and just as um, exciting as the initial ACEs study when we were all kind of. you know, taken aback by the research that was very alarming around the impact on the brain and body when it came to adversity.
3: Well said. And, you know, I think about it because back in the 20th century, if if an adult had a stroke and lost control of part of their body, um, it was thought that that was permanent. And now in the 21st century, we know that with intensive therapy, people can recover a function. And those are literally dead brain cells. And so we've learned from that and other things that our brains can rewire, and they certainly can rewire after adversity. Um, and so it, our brains are not just um, like a coffee cup that if you crack it, it's always cracked. They're living things, always responding to experiences. And the wonderful thing about, about children is their brains, they are just learning. That is, They are so good at learning stuff and that that's kind of what they do so these uh, positive childhood experiences can can really they're very important for child development um and certainly for resilience in the face of aces
2: so when we when we when i when i think about this i what were the seven and and how did you look at those and and what was the what was the finding of the research we know it had a great impact uh but i would love to know more and dig into that research because i think and and you and I spoke earlier, I spent 15 years as an educator, right? And mm-hmm. I, I realized very quickly how, how profound of an impact I could have as an educator because I was spending a lot of time with kids and the power of community and relationships and those positive experiences in a classroom, how impactful they were for our school community, for the parents that, that trusted the school. I mean, it just, it had such a major impact. So what were some of those the, or what were the seven that you looked at?
3: Sure, so Matthew, I'm gonna give you two different things. I'm starting to kind of mess up your mind, but we'll get there. Um, so we had seven survey questions that are the way we measured it, but working with Charlene Harper-Brown from CSSP, um, we have four building blocks of hope. So, and the way to think about it is one is you ask a person, what do you recall from your childhood? And the other is, what do children experience going forward that makes them better? So anyway, so the seven questions, In answer to your question. I'm thinking back to when you were less than 18 years old, how often did you feel able to talk to your family about feelings? Number two, how often did you feel your family stood by you during difficult times? Number three, how often did you enjoy participating in community traditions? Number four, how often did you feel a sense of belonging in high school? And I love this question because it's not what were your grades or was your SAT score or your extracurriculars. It's Mm -hmm. did you feel like you belonged? And related to that, number five is how often did you feel supported by your friends? Number six, how often did you have at least two non-parent adults who took a genuine interest in you? And we talk with people it's often a school teacher sometimes a coach sometimes a pastor or a rabbi or an imam all kinds of people can play that role often an aunt an uncle Um, but two non-parent adults took an interest in you and number seven how often did you feel safe and protected by an adult in your home and for each of these if you said always or almost always you got a point for that and you got up to seven points so it's very similar to the original ACEs scale where each kind of experience gives you a point. And then uh, with the help of Dr. Bethel, um, we ended up with uh, a seven point scale called the PCE score. And then that's what we've used for research studies.
1: Yeah, as I reflect on the questions um, that you asked, several things came up, especially as it relates to Historical trauma and intergenerational trauma. So, when we think about historical trauma being the stripping of community and shared practices and cultural practices, uh, and how historical trauma has had a real impact on that intergenerational transmission of trauma, I think, you know, what does it mean to have um, hope in? in the face of racism, historical trauma, and how can this framework be used to address um, historical trauma and also collective trauma? But um, what does it look like to address these types of widespread or cultural specific or group specific traumas with the HOPE framework?
3: That's such a great question. So um, first of all, if you just look at these seven questions, unpack something like feel a sense of belonging in high school. So if you're experiencing race-based bullying or people are making fun of you because of your sexual preference or, or because you're transgender or something, you may not feel that sense of belonging. So if you unpack these questions, they really require understanding that, that the system you live in is important. And so many people who experience racism and come out okay, um, can tell wonderful stories about a grandparent or a neighbor or a pastor who took an interest in them, who recognized their, um, their strengths and, and moved them, uh, move them along. So we think that, that they're, um, the, these questions are accessible to everyone and many of them are sensitive to, um, to everything that's going on in society. So we started doing a little bit of work with the National Indian Child Welfare Association. And one of the questions here is how often did you enjoy participating in community traditions? And one of the things that they do for their youth, they have powwows, the children uh, get to wear regalia, they listen to the elders telling stories, they're reclaiming their language um, that was stripped from them in the 20th century um, by frankly, outrageously racist things that were going on. Um, So all of these things have a piece of that. And then the other thing that we do is um, each of us, um, because we live in this world, has implicit biases and there are ways to measure them. Um, But what we do whenever we do a HOPE training, we talk about um, evidence-based anti-bias techniques. So one of them is um, what's called individuation. So instead of saying this person is like that because they're part of that group, you find out about them individually. And what we found is when we bring out the four building blocks of hope and ask providers to use those to understand a person, then they're no longer this victim of domestic violence or this person with crushing poverty or whatever it is. Um, They're this person who sings in the choir at church um, or takes care of her grandmother or whatever it is. And so we we learn a lot more. And that's an evidence-based anti-bias technique. It's not a systems thing, but it's something that we incorporate because many of us and many people who listen to this podcast um, spend a lot of time with people from different cultures, working with them, ideally collaborating to face some challenges, and being able to train ourselves to see the fullness of a person and what they bring to it is really just a wonderful way to reduce the bias that each of us has because we, we live in this world.
2: And I think when you're talking about the four building blocks, which are relationships, environment, engagement, and, and emotional growth, when we think about those building blocks, those can apply to anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just, you're not looking at it just in the idea of children, right? You just mentioned that this can be, these building blocks can be used across organizations across community, across faith-based communities. They are core principles that when looked at, and I love the idea of individualism, right? Looking at the person as a person is rehumanizing rehumanizing us as opposed to categorizing us. Um, talk more about those building blocks and how do organizations, how do communities, how do individuals utilize those to transform what we do traditionally know as being kind of a negative mindset (laughs) environment in a lot of places.
3: So the four building blocks are relationships, environment, engagement, and emotional growth. And, and they're so interesting. And we use the fairly wide definitions because people in different cultures and different circumstances and different resources have different experiences. Um, and so we, we talk about it, but then have, Individuals and organizations sort of fill in what this means to them. So, relationships each of us, our first relationship is with the person who gave birth to us. Um, We often call her mom, Um, very important relationship. And then, very quickly, we form deep relationships with the adults who care for us when we're harmless, when we're helpless babies. And so, as a pediatrician, I know the only thing a child really needs to learn in the first year of life is love. And what does unconditional love mean? And um, there's a lot of science about oxytocin and other hormones and things that happen to you with that. And when I say you, both the children and their parents, it's very cool um, that we do that. And then relationships we talked earlier with peers and with other adults um, who are supportive. Um, So all of those things really, really matter. Um, The next building block is environment. And the environment has like two aspects. One of them is your physical self. And what we found during the pandemic is there was protection against evictions. There was additional money through stimulus checks and many families got um, unemployment benefits or um, other sorts of things. Food benefits were increased. There was a child tax credit for many Americans. So children found that they were living in families that had been lifted out of terrible poverty and there's just a lot of information from surveys that we did of 9,000 American parents and from data about child abuse and neglect, how these systems things really let parents create a better environment for their kids. And so it's not all on the parents' backs. Like if you're working two jobs and still um, need SNAP benefits, it's, it's hard. And um, all of a sudden things help a little bit. Um, The other part of environment, of course, is the emotional environment. And Matthew, you were a school principal. So a lot of the work about environment comes from something called positive school environments, where how the principals and the teachers treat each other um, and how they treat the children is the most effective way of reducing bullying at school, and it makes it better. Um, So the schools can make it a positive environment and A famous quote from educators is, school should feel like family, not factory, and um, having that environment, just as an example. The next one is engagement. And and this is really to your point that this is multi-generational, that each of us, each person, each child wants to feel that we matter. So if you're doing chores at home, you matter. If you're on a football team, you matter. If you're doing murals in your community, you matter. If you're visiting your grandma and um, listening and singing with her, it matters. Um, But offering opportunities where you can matter is so important. And we call this engagement. So for adults, parent engagement is super important. There are ways that um, pediatricians and schools and home visitors can make parents feel engaged as opposed to making them feel like the targets of an intervention. Because as one of my friends says, uh, Jeff Lincoln back from Montana, nothing good ever happens to a target. Uh, so thinking about engagement in that way is so fun and so important. And each of us feels like this is an important thing. And the final one is opportunities for emotional growth. And emotional growth, although we adults like to think we're super important and you know, maybe we are, Um, Emotional growth really often happens when kids play with each other. So if you go out an elementary school playground, it's not uncommon to see the kids squabbling about the rules and you think, oh my gosh, why are they squabbling? They should just be playing. What they're doing is they're growing emotionally. They're learning about each other's viewpoints. They're learning to negotiate. They're having a conversation. They're learned, this is what emotional growth looks like. It's not always beautiful. But it's really important, creating those opportunities for child-centered play, creating opportunities for children to experience nature, and it, nature helps with self-regulation, um, all those things. So we adults can create a world where children have these positive experiences. And we've demonstrated as a society that we know how to do it. And I think there's some really wonderful lessons from around the country where uh, we have set up conditions where parents just because they love their children, are able to create help the children have these positive experiences.
1: Yeah, thank you for really doing a deep dive into those four building blocks. Um, A lot of what you said really helped me to think through how we've talked before about these conditions that we create and how it's not just um, the child or the parent, but it is the larger society. And I've been reflecting on you know, when we're in acute situations, we do respond with positivity. So if we use COVID, for example, and kind of the different things that you outlined that, you know, having that extra money, um, having people who are more attentive and more vulnerable during these times um, has really helped families, um, as we can see from the data that says that, you know, those um, packages that um, those you know, economic packages really lifted groups out of poverty. And now they're, they're being scaled back. And um, so what does that say about, why are we not able to sustain hope beyond just when we have these acute, um, more um, impactful issues that are, seem negative and, and we kind of triage? What does it mean to have sustained hope and, and um, support for children and families?
3: but i'm really optimistic i think that part of it is that most people don't understand how effective this was in helping families because there are lots of tough stories from covid grandparents who died parents who lost their jobs mental health problems and we focus on those because they're terrible right but but people aren't telling the good stories about living children lifting children out of poverty how parents and children grew closer through this And how important all these things we did as a society um, for each other um and as you know with government assistance and stuff for families so i think i'm optimistic i think as we do a good job telling these stories what works um we'll find that we we as a society want to invest in our children and families they are literally our future
1: yeah thanks for that and that is kind of a a message for the two of us as we tell our stories in in this way, that we take more time to focus on the positive as well. And um, I really think that you're right. It really has to do with kind of our our makeup as human beings to to focus on the negative and that we really have, in order to have that sustained hope, we have to highlight the positive at all times.
3: And it's important that we focus on the negative. Like if our ancestors didn't notice the saber tooth tiger approaching the cave, Um, They didn't make a lot of children, (laughs) or certainly children who survived. So we are wired to see the negative. It's really important. But one thing we know is we can train ourselves to see the positive. And that's a lot of we talk about in Hope is just changing the mindset. And um, it's just such a wonderful thing when you start to do that.
2: And I I have so many more questions that I, I definitely want to get into. Um and part of what I I think after the break, what I would love to dig into too is you know, what do you see the future being in this work? But also, again, going back to my experience of of, of public education and being a principal, of of the use of of rewards and punishment as a way mm-hmm. to drive because it's let's be honest, it's not just schools, right? This is s- systematically how we operate with a behaviorist mindset of. You mm-hmm. Reward people do you punish they won't and how does and again when we get back from the break how does this hope work how does the hope framework how does it fit into that is it contradictory um is it the i'm just curious to know um because when i think about the power of hope and when we build environments when we build the capacity when we build individuals around this idea that there is hope um some of those pieces you don't need, right? Or they don't. Anyway, I'm not going to get into my, uh, my, my uh, <laughs> soapbox because it could be long. But I just want to know more about where it fits in in that scope of not just schools, but systematically of the idea that you have to punish or reward.
1: I think that's an excellent point, and we'll we'll dive into that because I I definitely, as a psychology professor, that hope you know the what does it look like with rewards and punishment? So. Um, we'll take a break and we'll come right back and continue our discussion with Dr. Robert Sege. Thank you.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com
0: forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past. On history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests... We'll explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests, or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866 472 5791. That's 866 472 5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran.
1: Thank you for joining us in the first segment. We are back and we are going to continue our conversation with Dr. Robert Sege. Um, right before the break, we were really about to jump into a conversation that really is about kind of how we view um, behavior in in our society and the belief in rewards and punishment shaping behavior. And I have a lot to say on this, but I definitely want to hear what Matthew has to say about his school work, um, you know, in in public schools. Uh, I think elementary, um, but in my work as a psychology professor with college students and having to teach behaviorism um, to adults and talk about rewards and punishment, it's, it's definitely uh, too binary. And so we, you know, it's something that is a, an issue across the board. And we know that's something that our society has really bought into. Um, so, Matthew, kind of con- continue your conversation about, about rewards and punishment in your um, perspective.
2: Well, and I I think I carry two perspectives. I carry my principal, my educator perspective, and then I carry a parent perspective, um, where I have a son who uh, does well at school, but is terrified of making mistakes, is terrified of getting in trouble, is terrified of doing something wrong. Um, And so I, I see this from two standpoints, and we're constantly talking about hope and and, and all of these amazing opportunities and these things that we do and how he interacts with his friends. But this still is a lingering piece. And to me, it comes down to this idea of reward and punishment. And so I, I Dr. Sege, I, I I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on how does hope play a role in this big picture idea that has infiltrated our society for so long that you must have reward and punishment?
3: You know, it, it does make sense in some level, because children need to experience the consequences of, their, of what they're doing. Um, not necessarily the consequences of running into the street in front of a truck, but um, otherwise, bearing responsibility and knowing that they're a person who makes choices in life is really important. So in my point of view, the, the best kind of, of punishments are allowing the children to experience at least some of the natural consequences. And If I was a different person, I would talk about different kinds of justice and all those things, restorative justice, but really it's about teaching the kids that their actions may have hurt someone, may have caused something else, and helping them make decisions about how how to improve it. So I have um, lots of stories, but one of my favorite stories is I um, had a chance to speak with judges in juvenile court in Michigan And they were actually quite wise. And one of the judges told me or told us when he sentenced the child to community service, the way he did it was he had a talk with the kid. You're gonna have to do 40 hours or whatever of community service. I want you to come back next week and tell me what you're gonna do. And that act alone helped the child feel like they were seen as a person made them think for a week about how they could make it better um, and then have to defend that position to the judge of why it was that they were what they were going to do and i think that placing that confidence in the child at the same time as they're experiencing consequences you don't get to a juvenile court judge because you, know, you got an a plus on your test and, and you helped a lady cross the street so there is something going on there so i, I call, sort of hold that and then, for people in, who are listening who have thought a lot about this, in the old days, <clears throat> the consequences did something bad, you were bad, you get punished. So that was, I don't know, a long time. Then trauma informed care came along. And I'm really simplifying things, excuse me, but I'll do it anyway. Um, and we said, You were bad. So, what happened to you that made you like this? And when we say that, We have that us and them thing, right? Like something happened to you and I will help you heal from that. And that explains your behavior. And there's something to it. Like trauma obviously has effects. But what we think about with hope-informed care, it depends on the relationship. But what we would say is, um, Matthew, I know you. I know who you are. You can do better than that. Let's sort out what happened. How are we going to make it right and what are you going to do next time? Um, so that confidence that the person, um, the child in particular, has the capacity to do the right thing um, is really what comes through from hope. And it comes from that knowledge and from understanding their strengths, their sources of stamina, their relationships, the parts of the environment that work for them. If they're engaged with other community services, you can bring this all to bear um, in that discussion. And the important part of that is that we're, the idea of when a child misbehaves, you want to teach them how to behave correctly. And um, so I, I think that that's, a, we we call that a hope-informed approach. And I'm very happy to report that a couple of school districts we've talked to have gone on and, and sort of revised their discipline policies. And the, um, the old-fashioned discipline is very destructive. But if you think about it from a hope point of view, You have a child who acts out, and the punishment is suspension. So what you're doing is you're poisoning their relationships. You're making school feel not home. You're kind of ostracizing them from it. And so you're reducing the positive experiences that they need to have to heal. So I'm all in favor of consequences, but to use the consequences in a way that teaches a young person um, not just what kind of behavior is expected, but how they individually can do that.
1: Yeah, and this really points to a cycle that is so prevalent in schools. And we've had um, Judge Sheila Calloway on in the past, who's a juvenile court judge, and she talked about the school to prison pipeline. And so this, um, what you're saying really resonates with her discussion about how this school setting and the damage that's done to relationship in the school setting uh, and also the reputation and the cycles that are, um, that are, you know, the structure that is in the school setting then really um, puts this child in a corner that, you know, I have poor relationships. I, I don't have um, a foundation in the school setting. And then uh, odds are they often don't have um, that strong relationship in the home setting as well. Um, and then they're quickly kind of on this track to, um, more destructive behaviors and diagnosis and moving forward into the school to prison pipeline. So it really resonates with me around the importance of, um, the hope framework in the school setting and in juvenile courts, um, so that we are tapping into our understanding of what's innately positive about this child, what skills they have, um, and how, how that is not evenly distributed amongst all children, too. So, the, we, the way that we look at boys when it comes to this issue, um, definitely the way that we look at um, African American and Latino children when it comes to this issue. Um, and so, that, you know, the, the intersection of hope and equity um, is, or, or the use of the hope, hope framework as a way to foster equity. Is a very interesting dynamic to me.
3: Even while we're on the topic of um, systemic racism and implicit bias and boys and girls and black and white, one of the things that drives me absolutely bonkers is children getting suspended or expelled from preschool because they don't know anything. They haven't been on the planet very long. <laughs> what are you doing? They're not hardened criminals that need a life sentence because they threw sand in the, uh, in the eyes of another kid, they need to learn that. And all of us are really aggressive as two-year-olds. And those of us who succeed in life um, figure that out by the time we're five, and it's not always beautiful. Um, And all the statistics say that um, boys are more likely to get um, removed from preschool, and and black kids more likely than white kids. So all those implicit biases that, that we bring into it just come out there because kids misbehave. Boys do misbehave, girls misbehave, black kids, white kids. So it has to do with what we do. And the other thing that happens is it's really destructive of family life because parents need to have a safe, quality place for their child to spend the days while they work or do other adult things. So you're really uh, wrecking the family system because of uh, the adult's inability to, to um, figure out a way to keep the child, the child safe and the other kids safe and, and work on it. So I think there's, there's so much there um, that it's not necessarily that each individual preschool teacher um, is a racist or a member of the Ku Klux Klan. We all have, when you see someone, you make a judgment about them, right? When you see that saber-toothed tiger, you don't say, oh, nice tiger, mean tiger, is it a pussycat? And, and it's very important. We call this type one thinking, is how you make a judgment very quickly. And when we talk about it, hope is training ourselves to make a different judgment. So I used to work at Boston Medical Center, which is a safety net hospital in Boston. And our obstetrics department had a terrific program for women with opioid use disorder. And sometimes um, I would get their babies. And what I taught myself was each time I was about to meet a new baby from the RESPECT clinic that took care of these families, I remembered that this woman carried the baby to term because I know from talking with them that often um, people who love them told them because you're, and they used all kinds of words, um, you're not gonna be fit to be a mother, you shouldn't carry the baby. Then they got into recovery or stayed in recovery through their pregnancy. And then when the baby was born they advocated for themselves with the child welfare system. So now I had admiration because they were, they were, had stick-to-itiveness. I was curious, how did they do that? What, what made it possible? So we could have like genuine person-to-person conversations. And it made me able to ask them about their methadone dose and what was going on with their program or whatever, uh, from a position of, wow, how did you do this? Rather than, you have these horrible problems, you're an addict or whatever. And the change was in my head. And I like to think that it helped. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how we can look at people's struggles with serious problems, like opioid use disorder is a serious problem, um, um, but still look at them as whole human beings and, and use our humanity and our curiosity and our empathy and compassion um, and really be able to to do a much better job than if all we see is their problems.
1: Yeah, I I really, you know, when you said the changes in my head, that that really stood out to me because uh, it is very much rooted in our own personal bias and how we have to do the work internally, which is that emotional growth that, that we talked about before. Have we have to do the work internally? To be able to even see past our bias that mm-hmm. is really deeply embedded, that it, it comes from our own childhood and our own experiences, yep. to be able to get past um, kind of what we see as the negative about people, be it skin color or past history or how we um, have interpreted what it means to suffer from addiction in this country or um, or how we have interpreted what it means to be living in poverty in this country, because we have a lot of values that are associated with these, all of these issues. Um, and so, yeah, that definitely touched me, you know, the, the changes in, in myself. And that then changes the way that I care for this individual, the way that I, um, you know, support or serve this individual, which then has a change in their outcomes. And that change in yourself is, you know, you know, that's intangible, but but what comes from it has actual hardcore research behind it.
3: Thank you, Ingrid. You know, what we're trying to do with Hope is exactly what you said, is just to make it part of what we do as professionals so that we have a framework. We know about relationships, about environment, about engagement, about emotional growth. And I like the way you told the story and you saw emotional growth in me. I feel good now because uh, you saw that that positive experience that, that I actually had right And so if you as a professional train yourself to look for these things um, then it changes how you practice and it gives you direction for what to, for what to do next. Um, so you know another story from, from practice is I <clears throat> had a habit of asking parents who helps you with your baby because I don't know if you guys are parents I'm a parent um, we had neighbors and friends and relatives who helped us. And I know there were moments um, when I told my wife, this is your daughter because <laughs> she was crying a lot, right? Um, so we have all, all of those things. Um, but so I, asked, so I asked people like, who helps you with your child? And I remember once I asked someone, she, nobody. And then I said, you know, do you part of a church? No. Um, how about where you live? Oh, I don't trust them. Uh, how about your family? Oh, they don't live here. So. You know, you win some, you lose some. I was done. I went through my list. But later when the clinic ended, she was sitting out in the waiting room talking with another woman. And it turns out, they, long story short, they ended up becoming friends. But she recognized this person because they had both been to rehab together. I didn't even know she'd been to rehab. And, and they both had little babies and they became friends and supported each other. And it was because I asked these questions that, that put in her mind that this was really important that these relationships were important and it's not a sign of weakness, it's a human need. And um, I didn't know enough to, to, to point her in the right direction, but you know, she was smart, she figured it out. And I think it's a really important thing that we can do as providers is emphasize the importance of these building blocks and then trust people to work on them, they're not so hard. We don't have all the answers.
2: You know, I, I've I, I res- a lot what you said resonated with me, and I think one thing that I've spoken to many uh, administrators and educators is when I sit down with a parent in my school, I didn't sit down with them as the principal most of the time. I sit down with them as a fellow parent because there is no such thing as a perfect parent, and when I would say that and I would say, listen, as a parent, I struggle with this with my own child, I could see that – I could feel that connection, and I could I could sense that like, whoa – You're the principal and you have a hard time. Yes. And I think that is that rehumanizing, right? That is that connection, that ability to be able to say, Hey, I struggled with that too, or I've been through that too. Um, I think all of that plays a major role. And and I think, honestly, I have friendships now with parents that were in my school that I still talk to every month. Um, because I trust them. They trust me. We support each other. Um, and sometimes it isn't even about the child that was at the school. It's about, listen, this is going on, Portel. Can I have your ear? Absolutely. And that speaks, that speaks to the science, right? And so what do you feel the, the, the hope science, the paces science uh, is going to look like in the next 10 years? Um, because we've had a lot of discussions around adversity. But I feel like these discussions are just now starting to become part of the conversation.
3: We learned so much from ACEs and adversity. So we learned that childhood experiences last a lifetime. And we taught parents, everybody in this country really understands um, about that. We also learned there are sensitive periods, like we're always sensitive, but particularly like that birth to three period when our brains are growing so rapidly and adolescence, when our brains are just changing. What a painful process, but it works. <laughs> um, so those are particularly sensitive pro- times when children have those experiences. And many of us have done trauma-informed care and we've seen how it helps families. And so one of the lessons is that people heal, right? And if, you, if you're if you successful using trauma-informed care and you see how people respond, even though you don't really talk about it, you know that that, that you heal. So a person... Their ACEs score won't change, but their, their um, function can. Um, and, and I think the other thing that, that we've, we've done is just really changed the field around. People are talking about the economic consequences of childhood, all of those things um, that are really important that trauma-informed care brought to us. So I think that the next 10 years, we're going to get a much, much more complete picture of human development it's not like if we don't have adversity we're going to be okay and so we've known this right nobody thinks it's a great idea to put a child in a bubble put them on top of the mountain and send them food um, because even though they wouldn't have any adversity it's not they're not going to grow right so we've learned about those things i think we're going to learn as a society that when we have emergency housing for a family with a two-year-old it can't be in a place with noise restrictions Because two-year-olds can't be quiet. They're just not able to be quiet. They run around. They play. Um, And we talk about relationships and so much about you can't have a relationship with a TV set. And so how you do these things. What is the the value as a society to creating early childhood care that's high quality and interactive and children learn social things um, and they're cared for by adults who are treated well? Um, we're learning all of those things because it started with understanding when really bad stuff happens and we have ACEs that it has bad effects on us, but now we're broadening that, that children's brains and our brains are always changing, always responding to experiences. And we're learning so much um, about how that works. And I think, you know, the pandemic has been awful in many ways and we're seeing a mental health crisis. from a hope point of view, one of the things I think about, particularly for teenagers, is they were deprived of those authentic relationships, and they were deprived of a feeling that they matter, because who the heck cares whether you're paying attention on a Zoom classroom, you're, and you're not you're not playing football or doing art or singing in a choir, because singing in a choir was dangerous, right? Um, so I think they missed out on a year or two years of of those important relationships and engagement um, i'm confident that they can heal but i think the other lesson we've learned is it's not just the concrete things it's not just the reading writing and arithmetic it's all of these things that make us functional adults and that we have to double down on our investment in kids and ingrid you said before that it's not time to end the pandemic support for families and i couldn't agree with that more i think we're entering a period of recovery where um there's a lot of good things that are going on we know there's something called post traumatic brain growth where people actually end up better than before and they talk about how this disaster really changed me and i want that for every kid and we need to invest as society in a relationships environment opportunities for emotional growth and engagement so that we can come out the other end and heal um, from what was really a difficult experience for adults and a particularly terrible experience for many teens and young adults.
1: Yeah, that is so, um, that is so impactful because one thing about collective trauma is the ability to go through a meaning making process during and after. Um, mm-hmm. And that meaning making process, if it is infused with positivity, then that is where that post-traumatic growth can happen in mm-hmm. that all the all the lessons that I've learned, you know, while in quarantine, we, we spent a lot of time together. We had fun together. We did board games versus, um, you know, the quarantine really uh, took two years of my life away. And I mm-hmm. think you're, you're right. We are in recovery right now. And we're, you know, just beginning the processing of the last um, two years. And it is very important that we do think about those positive experiences that have happened uh and not just the negative and even see those negative experiences that you've come out on the other side of as a positive experience that we that we've um endured or overcome and we were um we managed I hate to use the word resilient but uh, <laughs> but that's a that's a whole other topic but um that you know that we've survived uh and that we have the opportunity to to heal and recover and um, which is a positive thing and so I think that what you're saying is so relevant around teenagers and school-age children as well that those missed opportunities for those positive experience they that they matter just that the child did not experience adversity during that time through, while they were quarantining or where schools were um, social distancing or closed that um, those missed positive experiences matter and that we as a country need to create the conditions where they will experience positivity in that recovery stage as well. And that's facilitated by not just individual families, but also, you know, our systems and our, and our ability to provide financial assistance and support. Um, And so this has been a, a great episode. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, the call to action as we think about the information that we've had today is really that we, you know, we spread positivity amongst ourselves, that we foster positive um, interactions with each other. And that's exactly what I was thinking too. And, and I will tell you, Dr. Sege, this time
2: with, with you has, has, it's made me think of my role as a father Um, Because when you went through those seven questions, I was I was rolodexing like, how do Mm -hmm. I do this every day? Right. And as a practitioner and as an educator and as a director of communities, I I'm going to carry what you said and the work that you've done forward, because I think that's our responsibility. We must bring hope. Right. And we must be able to see and and uh, and move forward with this idea of. There is hope. We just have to see it in each other, individually and collectively. I I, I appreciate the time that we've been we spent with you, um, because wow, you have my you have my brain spinning, which is fantastic.
3: That's great, and I I think you'll post on the uh, along with this. We have positiveexperience.org, our website. There are lots of opportunities for training, lots of resources for professionals and for families, and we would love nothing better than to hear from you.
1: Thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much to the audience for joining us and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.